I was in Target about a month ago, and uh, I saw one of those scenes that just sticks in your mind, and, and it it just on on this this day when we when we honor mothers, here was this this scene before me that I thought was so descriptive of the differences in the species. <laughs> there was there was a young couple and uh, the father, as you can imagine, was pushing the basket and uh, he was out in front and just lagging a few steps behind him was the young mother and she had her baby snuggled up in one of those little snugglies. The baby was you know, facing outward and looking out. And, and it was just, it was one of those moments where it was just frozen. I, I, I watched her and she's just, she's just holding this little one and she's just kind of lost being there with her baby. You know, she's rubbing her face on the baby's head and just kind of kissing it, you know, and, and the dad is out in front on a mission, you know, he's hunting, you know, I got to find something to kill. I'm here for a purpose. And the mother is just walking along and she is, she is somewhere else. I thought, man, what an image. You know, you, you think back to, to the creation of, of men and women. And besides the obvious physical differences and the fact that, that, that God put the woman on the earth to, to propagate the human race, at least to carry the, the newborn child. I thought, you know, he also put the woman on the face of the earth to provide for the emotional well-being and safety of the human race. Um, what, a, uh, what a precious place that, that, uh, that mothers play. And I can't help but think, too, um, as Eileen mentioned earlier, that... that uh, but motherhood in, in, its, in its finest is such a, an awesome picture of the, the tender, mothering, nurturing nature of our God. And for that, uh, we can be so thankful and, and celebrate. Some of you might recognize the name Bernie May. Bernard is, is his name. He was a, he was a pilot with with Wycliffe Bible translators for many years. And then after that, he, he served in the U.S. Uh, as, as the director of, of the, the Wycliffe operation here in this country. And in that role, he would often write a column in the, uh, the ministry's newsletter. Well, he once wrote about a couple by the name of Ken and Neve Shoemaker. Now, they had been faithful supporters of Wycliffe for many, many years. And at the time that he wrote about them, they were in their 80s. And he wrote about the conversation that he had one day on the phone with them. Ken told Bernie on the phone. Yep, he said, Bernie, we're on our last lap. But we're committed to spending three hours a day in prayer. Mostly for Wycliffe people. The other day, Neve was awfully tired she said she didn't know whether she was able to pray for the full three hours. I told her, come on, don't let up. We've got to finish the course. 
And that day we prayed for three and a half hours. Three and a half hours in prayer? Are you kidding? When's the last time you prayed for three and a half hours? the last time I prayed for three and a half hours in a week, let alone in, in a day. Do you wonder how you could find three and a half hours in a day to pray? Martin Luther is credited with the saying, I have so much to do today that I shall never get through it with less than three hours in prayer. Or maybe you're thinking something like, even if I could commit to that kind of time in prayer, what on earth would I pray about for all that time? This morning we begin our study of the last of the four things that the early believers in Jerusalem were committed to. Prayer. Luke records for us that they were devoted to prayer. I've asked Rick if he would read that Acts 2 passage for us again this morning. Just a, a reminder of this primary text in this series. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone to their number daily, those who were being saved, those who were, who were claiming God's grace in their lives through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus, becoming fully devoted followers of Jesus. We've said all along that this text is a wonderful snapshot of the life of the early church. I think it's, I think it's just an awesome glimpse of God at work through his people, and, and I've shared with you that I'm convinced that it has to do with, with their devotion, with their commitment to, to those four things. Now, I, I, you know, I've admitted that I can't prove that from Scripture, but I think I'm right. They were committed to the apostles' teaching, to the Scriptures, to fellowship. They were committed to being together more than coffee and donuts. They were committed to breaking the bread, keeping Jesus as central, both in their conversation and in their lives, their actions, and to prayer. Now, for sure, the Spirit could have recorded so much more about the life of the early church. But He chose not to. In fact, this passage and a similar one in Acts chapter 4 are really the, the only ones that give us a, a real clear glimpse of what was going on in that early community of believers. I cannot help but think that, that it's, it's critically important. So much so that I think, it's, I think it's key to a healthy church. I've felt that way for years. In any generation, any place on the planet, with any gathering of people. I love this passage. 
that as God's people gather together, committed to one another through the good times and the bad, as they commit themselves to God's word and knowing his word, commit themselves to keeping, keeping Jesus central. I know that seems like a no-brainer, but it often doesn't happen. What does this have to do with Jesus? That is the, that is the mantra of the healthy church. What does this have to do with Jesus? And to prayer. I think these things are, are the key to life and to health, to vitality in the church. Jim Simbola. Many of you know the name, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, or excuse me, the Brooklyn Tabernacle, out of which the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sings. Uh, in his book, Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire, uh, if you've read that, you remember the story. There was a time in his life where he was just, he was in crisis. And, and, and out of that time of crisis came tears of despair over the fact that he felt he would live out the rest of his ministry days just doing what he was doing and not seeing God do the great and awesome things that God and only God can do. And it was out of the honesty of that time, the desperation of that time, that, that the somewhat famous, if you will, Tuesday night prayer ministry of the Brooklyn Tabernacle came into existence. Hundreds of people gather at the Brooklyn Tabernacle on Tuesday nights, and they pray. I've been to one of those meetings. Whoa, do they pray. It's just amazing. They pray. They cry out. And the four things that the Jerusalem believers were devoted to I'm hesitant to say that one is more important than the other. I probably shouldn't, so I won't. But I'm tempted. I, I wonder, I wonder about prayer. I wonder about the place of prayer, the importance of prayer in the life of the church, both as an individual practice as, as, a, as a corporate event where, where God's people gather together, it seems that, that prayer may be the most challenging to do faithfully or on a regular basis. Attendance at, at prayer gatherings at churches is, is down all across the country. The believers in Jerusalem were devoted to prayer. And as a result of that devotion, that commitment, at least in part, they got to see God do amazing things. Now, I know this will come as a surprise to you, but I have a theory. And I know that you love my theories. And so I'm going to share this theory with you. But first we're going to stand and we're going to read our text for this morning. From Matthew chapter 6. Familiar words. Familiar words. Even if you've never read Matthew chapter 6, you'll, you'll know most of this text. From the words, uh, the, the, the mouth of Jesus, words to his disciples, uh, instruction on prayer. Let's read together. This, then, is how you should pray. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I think this is the most important prayer in all of Scripture. There are certainly many prayers in Scripture, and, and we can learn from all of them. But this one, this one comes from the Master. Luke tells us that Jesus taught this prayer in response to his disciples' request that he teach them to pray. So this morning, I, I want to, just for a few minutes that we have, to sort of create an interpretive framework, if you will, for understanding prayer that I think flows out of not the prayer itself, but the verses that, that come prior to the prayer. And uh, it'll set us up for looking more closely at the prayer together over the, the next couple of Sundays. But let's begin with a neighbor question this morning to uh, sort of start our framework, shall we? I want you to turn to someone nearby and ask them, what do you think is the main reason why people pray? Good. Ask your neighbor. What do you think is the main reason why people pray? <clears throat> What's your neighbor think? <laughs> okay. What are some of the reasons that you heard? Absolutely. Did you hear that? I want God to do something for me. That is why he exists, is it not? To do for you. For me first, then for you. Sorry, Gary. He is the immortal ATM. That's right. What else? Why do people pray? Okay. Commanded to. Good, good. Guidance, good. City? Fear. Say more. Fear of? Okay, okay, all right. So they turn to God because they're fearing something, fearful of something. Good, good. Zach? Okay, good, good. Excellent. Say again? The Spirit prompts us. Good, good. Donna? Comfort in time of crisis. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Funny. Huh? Asking for something. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, okay. I think that's fair. I think, you know, I'll, I'll show my cards. I think as Christians, we know what ought to be the reason or the best reasons for prayer. But that may not characterize or, or motivate why we pray. Um, and I don't mean that as a, as a negative or heavy, Rick. Okay. 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 And and that too, would it not, Rick, be motivated by need or a desire of some kind? Even if it's the best desire, um, we are convinced, at least in our better moments, that God has the power to do that. Yeah, I, I think... I think need is a word that, that I spent a lot of time with this week as I was thinking and praying and studying for, for this morning. I think need, the word need, uh, incorporates often um, why people pray. We are finite. We are limited. We are... We are dependent beings, and, and that comes with being human, limited, finite, dependent. Sorry to have to break it to you that way, but that's, that's who we are. That is the way that we are. And, and here, I think, is an important note, so just hold on to this one. Being dependent, I believe, is a, a pre-fall. Thing. The entrance of sin into creation did not bring about the existence of human need in terms of uh, de- dependence upon God. Sin, sin did not cause that. I think that dependence upon God is built into our design. God has created us to have a need for him. He has created us to have a need for the one for whom we were created. We are designed to be dependent and in need of him. Does that make sense? Okay. You buy that so far? All right, good. Sin created brokenness. Brokenness of the relationship specifically the relationship for which we were created. And it's out of that brokenness comes problems that bring about basic human kinds of needs. The lack of clothing, the lack of justice in the world, the lack of food, the lack of safety, the lack of shelter, the lack of healthy relationships, the lack of money, etc., etc., etc. But... I believe that these things were the result of sin and broken relationship with the Creator. Before sin, there were no needs. There was dependency upon God. There was dependence upon God, 
And out of that relationship of dependence came provision of what was necessary to live out that relationship with him, to enjoy what we were created for. Does this make sense? Are you tracking? Okay. Some of you don't look like you are. I'm not sure that I am, to be quite honest. But this is important, so I'm hanging in there. Stay with me. Enjoying God. Enjoying the relationship for which we were created, being dependent upon him, having our primary need be him and relationship to him. That is what God intended. Intimacy with God and enjoyment of him. Before sin, no needs. After sin, the primary relationship was broken and plenty of needs those things that, that we need, those things that we want, those things that we desire, came as a result of sin in the world. Remember what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. He said, in, in God, in Him, we live and move and have our being. That is the fundamental need. That is the dependency that is built into the fabric of humanity. There's no getting away from it. If God withdraws his breath from our lives, we do not go on. We were created to be dependent upon him. John Piper says that that there's nothing that brings greater honor to God than for his people to acknowledge their need of him and express their dependence upon him and their desire for more of him. Some of you were a part of the Piper study we did together a few years ago. And, and you remember that we heard Piper say several times that, that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified. God is greatly exalted. And his people just go, yes, I am yours. I am yours. I need nothing else. I am yours. Okay. So here's my theory. You ready for my theory? Yeah. All right. Here we go. The reason, I know, edge of your seat. Hold on, Lee. The reason that we are not more devoted to prayer is because we are not seeing God do amazing things in response to our prayers. And the reason we are not seeing God do great things in response to our prayers is because we are not praying for great things. Our prayers are puny. Our prayers are, to quote a good friend of mine, pathetic. We are often pathetic in our praying. Here's the reality. I think we tend to see prayer primarily, though we would not admit it because we know that we shouldn't. We tend to see prayer as a tool for provision, as a solution to our needs, the things that exist because of sin in the world. And so we pray for those things that, that trouble us, that plague us, that confront us, that make life hard, that make life uncomfortable. 
that I think is predominantly our practice of prayer, both personally and together as God's people. I think that's why we desperately need to hear Jesus' teaching in this prayer. This may sound crazy to you, but, but I think that this, this model prayer that Jesus gives to us is, is an invitation to find our way back to the intimacy for which we were created to live our lives. Amen. To live our relationship of intimacy with the God who created us. If you're a parent, you know how wonderful it is from time to time to just hear your kids say, I love you. You know how wonderful it is to hear your kids express appreciation. Some of you are going, what's that? (laughs) How about God? Do you think he ever tires of hearing our requests over things that perhaps he's already promised to take care of? You're going to go away mad at me this morning. I, I think it's unavoidable. And I, I'm not trying to make you mad, but I, boy, this has just been rocking my world this week. Jesus, Jesus taught this prayer, my friends. There have been questions throughout the ages of, you know, when Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Well, did, did he mean to pray exactly like this? Like verbatim? Is this the only prayer we should ever pray? What a stupid question. There are prayers all through Scripture. That, that make us realize, no, he didn't mean verbatim. What he was driving at was principles to shape our prayer lives. Values that somehow need to get to our hearts and bring us to a point of intimate relationship with the one who created us. Taught by Jesus. Who knows more? Who knows more about intimacy with the Father than Jesus? Thank you, Zach. (laughs) Who knows more about prayer as vital to our relationship with the one who created us than the one who created us? Nobody does. It seems to me that we need to give attention to the principles, to the values that are in this prayer. Let me read for you just the first few verses that, that preface this. Make a couple, couple of observations that will hopefully establish this framework as we begin to look more closely at the prayer in the weeks to come. Jesus said, and when you pray. Hear the assumption there? And when you pray. He's thinking, well, you'll pray. Everybody prays. You know, call it what you want. But there is at some point a verbalization in in everyone's life of, I need help. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing on the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. You remember the story that Luke records for us. Two men went to the temple to pray. 
One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector standing here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus starts this passage off by saying, when you pray. Who's the you? Followers. Remember, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And that started out with his followers coming up on the mountainside. And he began to teach them. When you pray, when you followers of Jesus, when you children of God, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. First observation I think that's important for us to remember about prayer is that prayer, prayer that God, dare I say, hears, and blesses and responds to is prayer that flows from a humble awareness of one's relationship with God. True prayer is about the people of God spending time humbly with their God. It is not done for the benefit of others who may see us or observe us praying It is not done because we have to or because it is expected, but because we can. Because we are invited into this relationship of intimacy. Jesus said, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray where people will see them. You ever pray in a restaurant before you eat? You don't have to answer that. I was thinking about that earlier this week. Why do we do that? Because we pray at home. It's an expression of of thanks. Genuine recognition of, of our God who has provided for us. Or is there sometimes the intention that our prayer would be a witness? I don't know if that's bad. I just know that prayer is never to be a spectacle. That's what Jesus says. Seems to me that, that we need to be very cautious to examine our motives, particularly in the use of, of public prayer. <laughs> it's not an excuse for not gathering together and praying together in public. It's not what Jesus is driving at when he goes on to talk about a second observation that prayer is about intimacy with the Father. And intimacy with the Father is prayer's greatest or ultimate reward. When you pray, go into your room. The word could literally be a storage closet. Close the door. Pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. That word reward, I can't speak. That word reward is so fascinating. Um, We tend to think of it in terms of answers to prayer. 
That, that word reward is a word that's used in other contexts as, as wages, as, as, as payment for service done. Jesus doesn't say that when you go into the quiet place and, and pray to your father who sees what is done in secret, he will answer your prayers the way that you want. In fact, he doesn't even refer to answers of prayers. He talks about a reward. What might be the reward? What might be the payment? How about the possibility of, of intimacy with God? Oh, here's my child in the closet seeking me. I will meet him. I will meet her. In this place, I, I'm coming to the conclusion that that prayer is really not so much about getting what I pray for. I'm not so sure that it's about answers. You know, you, you go into the Christian bookstore and there's just all kinds of books, you know, four steps to answered prayer, you know, ten steps to, you know, rubbing the magic bottle in the genie pot. No, I'm just not sure. That the heart of prayer is so much about getting answers to the stuff that we bring as it is about finding ourselves in a place of intimacy with our Father. Those early Jews wouldn't have ever thought to refer to Yahweh as Father. That's so intimate. That's so close. That's so scary. Father. I read a story about a woman this week who used to use a prayer closet as a child. And she, she talked to it, about it as her, her sanctuary where she would crouch in the dark and, and she'd spill out her heart to God. And as I matured, she said, and I moved away from home, this habit fell by the wayside. After all, how convenient is a literal prayer closet in a dorm room when you're in college or an apartment with a roommate or a home shared with a spouse. But several years ago, I rediscovered the power of closeted prayer. My husband was recovering from a routine outpatient surgery that unexpectedly revealed a suspicious tumor. That afternoon, my husband and I were scheduled for a follow-up with the surgeon to review the results. And as my husband slept downstairs on a recliner, I stood before our bedroom mirror, struggling to make myself presentable for the upcoming physician's visit. My stomach was nodded with apprehension. My face was haggard from worry. I was so overwhelmed with distress that I walked into our closet, shut the door, flung myself onto the floor, broke down in the darkness. God, I am so afraid that my husband has cancer. I don't want to lose him. And somewhere, she says, between my flowing snot and convulsive sobs, God's presence filled that closet. His voice, inaudible, yes, but clearer than any sound I've ever heard, told me, everything is okay. That stunning and unexpectedly powerful encounter left me almost dizzy. I arose, I blew my nose, I wiped the tears off my face, and suddenly felt electrified by an unassailable sense of God's absolute control over our scary circumstances. God 
The God of the universe had seen my distress in that secret space and had chosen to personally comfort me. Praise team, come on forward and prepare to lead us in our response. My friends, it's an invitation to the intimacy of the garden relationship that we were created for. We'll do more with the specifics of the prayer in these next couple of weeks together. But I think it's so critical for us to understand that Jesus is verbalizing to those of us who are his followers, your prayers are different. Your rewards go beyond what is answered or what is not, what particular formula is used or what words are said about this or about that. It is the pursuit of intimacy with the Father that God's people are after. I asked my son Cameron if I could have his permission to tell this story. You know that he spent almost 13 weeks on crutches. He uh, played in a soccer game yesterday for the first time since November. And uh, it's just, it's the love of his life. And this was uh, probably about eight or nine weeks, ten weeks into the, the crutches scenario. When I was in the kitchen doing something, Cameron's at the table doing his homework. And out of the blue, Cameron says, Dad, you believe in prayer? Uh, no, son. Not a fan of it at all. Yeah, yeah, I, I really do. He said, well, do you believe that, that, that prayer works? And I said, well, yeah, tell me more. What, where's this coming from? He said, well, during this time that I've been on crutches, I've been talking a lot to God. And God and I are closer than we've ever been. And I'm just not sure that he's hearing my prayers. I looked at him and I said, go back to what you just said. Describe for me again your relationship with God as a result of all of your praying. He got this grin on his face and he said, I never thought of it that way.